Okay, uh, so let's uh, let's look at Daniel seven this morning. It's our lesson. This is one of my favorite visions in the in the Bible. It's really really amazing what we see here. So Daniel chapter seven. I'm just going to read and I'll stop and maybe comment a little bit here and there. And of course, if y'all have anything to say, you're welcome to. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of the head of, of his head, visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So that's good. You know, it's always a good idea to write your dream down if you have a significant dream. I've, I have found. Uh, Daniel declared, "I saw in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea." different from one another. Um, so I'm just going to kind of treat this section a little bit expositorily and talk a little bit about this as I read. You know, in Scripture, the sea tends to, uh, tends to be used and oftentimes when sea is shown, it's shown as chaos, as chaotic. And uh, you often in Scripture see bad things coming out of the sea or bad creatures in the sea or... Or, uh, you know, the sea gave up its dead in the end. You know, well, that means there was a lot of dead in the sea, you know, and things like that. So the sea uh, in Scripture is often a chaotic thing. And uh, it can symbolize chaos in our lives, too, in Scripture, I think, you know, chaotically. And, of course, it can also just mean the sea. But I think that, you know, a lot of times we read in Scripture uh, the chaos of the sea and, and, and the fact that, Usually in these cases, God triumphs over these, these forces of darkness with the sea. And in that chaos, that's a teaching for us that he, he is over the chaos in our lives and the darkness in our lives. So, so the sea is often used to that effect. Um, but it's not always used to that effect, you know. Uh, you, you see the sea sometimes as, uh, you know, in creation, the sea is, you know, is a good thing because everything God made was good, right? In Genesis, he makes that clear. Uh, and uh, so, you know, the sea is not always a bad thing in Scripture, but a lot of times it can, it, it seems to be a chaotic thing, just like when Jesus was out there and the storm came up on the sea. But Christ, Christ was over the sea because he commanded it. He was in charge of it and it had to obey him. And that's that's the lesson, I think, there for us. So, y'all, y'all agree, everybody? Even the yeah. wind and the sea obey him. Amen. Amen. Even the wind and sea obey him. Chaos is not evil. Is what you're saying. Well, it's under God's God's control, right. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Chaos yeah. and evil are not synonymous. They may not be, but for me the lesson is that God is in control of the chaos and he, he commands it, you know, and he can still it, you know, whatever, you know. So well, that was a, that was a common God that controlled the chaotic waters of the universe was the true God. Yeah. So this, is, mm-hmm. this is what's filtered through mm-hmm. all of, especially the Old Testament. I mean, even in the Psalms, they're, they 
Mm-hmm. This is God controls chaotic waters. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To jump ahead, the, uh, the vision in Revelation of the throne, there is a sea of glass. Yeah. It. So this is a calm sea. Yes, smooth. Uh huh. Yeah. It's it's and it's and Christ is it's before Christ in the end, and so he's he has it subjugated into calmness. Right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Well, he used death to defeat them. Mm-hmm. You talk about he it used chaos. Absolutely. Purpose. He can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we even see that with the way he uses nations to, to judge his own people. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. chaotic nations. He uses Babylon. He uses uh, Cyrus and Darius and, and all of these evil kings for the purpose right. of their chaotic pagan you know, king. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, just to take this to an application level, I think a lot of people uh, struggle with seeing the world and life as chaos and disorder in their lives versus order in their lives. You know, uh, you'll hear people, I'm going through a rough time or, you know, I'm, I've got a lot of problems in my life right now. And, and that's about, I mean, that, that may be true, but as believers in a sovereign God, we have to learn to not see this duality, this chaos versus order and see chaos itself is under the control and power of God. And so it's, it's, it's all under God's authority, you know. And uh, so that's the challenge for us as believers, I think, on an application level. Yeah. Man, used to say years ago, God can disaster. That's a hard teaching, but yeah. Yeah. I make these, and the King James says, and create evil. And I think that could be interpreted there as disaster. Yeah. I create disaster in your life. Mm-hmm. I, the Lord, do all these things. Yeah. His reason for it, we might not understand. Right. Some of the sovereignty of God. Sure, yeah. And, uh, we might not like it. Yeah. But it's the, God's will, and He will work us through it and teach us through this, His sovereignty. Right. So right. it's not always smile, God loves you. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we we can't we don't have to we shouldn't pray for peace or pray you know pray for God to lead us out of it but or pray that it would go away. It's you know that's fine. Uh, pray for healing or whatever you know. I mean he wants us to do that too. So, uh, but he may not he may not heal. He may you know he just may not. So. Um. All right. So. Verse, uh, where were we? We're ready for verse 3, I think. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. As I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Uh, After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and domination was given to it. 
After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Notice it didn't say that about the other three. So this is a worse beast. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I'll stop there. Uh, now, I, of course, you know, I did a little pre- preparing for this. I kind of looked up to see, well, historically, what do people believe the beasts represent in terms of kingdoms? And, of course, I got four different answers, you know, uh, which is what, what you get with prophecy, right? Uh, but but uh, there are some uh, consistencies. The first one is almost always interpreted as Babylon, um, at least in the, the things that I read, that uh, was like a lion. And the fact that uh, his wings, uh, he, he, it was a, a lion with eagle's wings, which I believe is a symbol, a Babylonian symbol anyway, uh, in history. And you see it in uh, carvings and so forth, you know. And then, um, so that one's a little more obvious maybe than some of the others. And he has these uh, uh, wings were pulled off of him, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and he got in, in his mind was given to him. Well, this is a reversal of King Nebuchadnezzar's situation of going crazy, you know what I'm saying, like a beast of the field. So this is the reversal of that. Yeah, well, Nebuchadnezzar came out of that. Yeah, yeah. He came out of believer in, in Almighty God. Right, exactly. So he yeah. Came, he ceased to be a beast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a beast before he was a beast. Right, right, yeah. And now he's a man. So this, is, so this refers to Nebuchadnezzar, in my opinion, that probably symbolizes him. Uh, so that one's somewhat a little easier to get. Uh, the, the next one, let me get my notes here before I misinterpret what I was going to misstate this. Um, some people think the the bear is that the next one. Let's see. Some yeah. Some people think that's the Medes. Some people think that's the Persians. Um, I don't know. It's hard to know. You know, if you want to interpret that with the ancient kingdoms. Yeah, they were kind of together. Anyway. That's true. Medes and Persians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the fourth one. Uh, some people think it's the Greeks. However, I tend to think it's Rome, and I think that's more of the traditional Christian understanding then it might be Rome uh, and the or Greco-Roman uh, and the fact that that culture still exists today so the the you know we are still living as a result of of many of the Greco-Roman principles philosophy and so forth so in a sense that has kind of still maintained that fourth beast that continues even today uh, some said some say democracy democracy was born with the Greeks. You know, I don't I don't know my history well enough to know if that's true ancient history, but but uh, I know that's been said. You know, and so um, I think the fourth beast, because it's designated, it's just my opinion. I, I may be wrong, but I think the fourth beast, because it's designated as being worse than the others, and and far more dangerous, I think could be interpreted as being something that lasts a lot longer. And therefore encompasses our us, our era today even, but I think it it it's about from their perspective. I think they saw it as Greco-Roman. You see what I'm saying? And that some of those principles have still maintained all this time. Any thoughts? Y'all think I'm wrong on that? It's okay if you do. I, I'm 
I'm open to correction. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm going to come out in favor of the leopard being Greece. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it's kind of a lightweight animal mm-hmm. with uh, uh, the wings of a bird. That's true. That, yeah. That I've read that denotes swiftness. Okay. And Alexander the Great. He yeah. conquered the world in like three Quick. years. Yeah. And then he died. Right. But then uh, it was, that empire was split up into four groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and a couple others. Right. Which is, couldn't mean be the four heads. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think in general, um, I, I agree with the interpretation. I, but it, I get confused because they start to bleed into each other. And yeah, it's that's hard true. for me to yeah. clearly... Right. I mean, in Revelation, it talks about you know the the woman, mm-hmm. uh, the evil one, yeah. you know, being a symbol of Rome. Right. But it also says that she's Babylon at the same time. You know, Babylon yeah. has fallen. Talking about the Roman Empire. Yeah. yeah. So well, we use Babylon to describe of, things today too. Yeah. I mean, these you know, things are yeah. all sort of. Each one is like. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they, they all yeah. sort of are. Uh, Part of the same pattern. I agree. Yeah. They're all a manifestation of the first great authoritarian empire. I agree 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to, and I'm not, you know, don't interpret my teaching as saying that, you know, first of all, you need to understand I'm not one of these people that looks at Revelation and says, well, that's the Soviet Union or that's, uh, you know, whatever. I I don't do that. I don't read it that way. Uh, Now, it, it may be. But I'm just saying that, that I, I tend to be very cautious about that kind of approach because people have done that all through history reading the Bible and they're almost wrong every time because the same country goes away and they're wrong about the second coming. And, you know. So I agree with you that you, know, you kind of have to be, you know, there's, it's all kind of part of the same thing. You know? so I, yeah. One thing that I like about the interpretation you're giving is that it has that room for the ambiguity. Yeah. The fact yeah. that the Greeks and the Romans were sort of part of the same thing, whatever right. the thing was. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, Culturally, they were. Yeah. The Rome kind of was an extension of Greece a little bit in, a sen- in some senses, you know. It's a lot easier to, to uh, understand prophecy looking back at Definitely, yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Greg, you got anything? You, you read prophetic stuff sometimes. I normally stay away from Daniel and Revelation. Okay. <laughs> so May not be a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I mean, really, I mean, the yeah. language is so... Right, right. And I'm, I'm a very poor Bible studier. I constantly... I don't think that's true. Yeah. You get into something so much... Uh, what's the description of those two? Uh, the... Apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. Well, no, it's a flourish it was Mark Twain who said it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me it's the things that I do understand <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah no that's fine but um, well now here's what's interesting uh, is the is the little horn that comes up and in, in, uh, as we read on so we read about the fourth beast and it was it was a, a bad dude, right? It, it, it was a pretty, pretty horrific, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, as Daniel describes it. And it's, it had iron teeth, you know. Uh, 
So some people see that as, you know, the, the, the military might of Rome, like I was saying. But uh, And then in verse 8, he says, I considered the horns. It had ten horns. So Daniel's thinking about these horns. What are these horns in this creature? And behold, there came up another among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So you have this little horn that comes out, and it's it's got it's just some really bizarre imagery, you know. It's got a, a mouth and eyes, and it's it's got a face on it, I guess, and it's speaking. Not great, not great in the sense of positive. It's speaking great in the sense of. Mine uh, says pompous. Pompous. Okay, yeah. I, I I think it. ESV says great. I don't know other than yours. I don't know what all the other translations we might have in here, but. Uh, huge. Huge. Yeah, that's probably good. Yeah, uh, that's. This is a great example of why it's good to read other translations because you know if if you read great. Oh, it's great. He's saying something good. You know, that's not what it means. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it's speaking and it's speaking things and because it's, it's great and mighty and powerful and, and whatever it is, that means what it has to say is having profound effect. You see, if it's described as being great and powerful, that means it's profoundly effective, which means it's causing problems causing issues so we can assume that that means what this is is profoundly effective on the earth or wherever Um, now most people uh, throughout history the church fathers included um, has seen this as a picture is a uh, picture of the antichrist Uh, and that's i think that's as good of an interpretation as any Um, so this would be the Antichrist. And of course, this is where you run into problems with doing that kind of thing, is that different times, different cultures says, oh, well, that must be this guy because he's a really bad guy in my time. And I think this is the Antichrist. So this refers to him. Well, that, that becomes problematic when people do that. You know, the, the, um, uh, a lot of people throughout history have been thought to be the Antichrist. And they, they may have been an Antichrist in a sense. Uh, but, you know, as far as the Antichrist, you know, we see prophetically, well, he may be among us now, but if he is, we don't know who he is, you know. It's the concept of double prophecy. Yeah, yeah. You have early and latter reigns. You know, so mm-hmm. the early reigns are specific, specific time that they're, that they're Sure, yeah. This is true. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, good point. But looking back, a lot Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts? So you're saying that some are saying this could be a symbol of Antichrist. Yeah, and, and and there's more evidence of that to come in this passage. I'm but just wondering. I, I don't know. Yeah, the the little horn that comes up and yeah. yeah. False Trinity, maybe, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I honestly, I yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Right. These are like the horns of the altar too. But it would be it would be the kind of horn off a ram, right, or a creature. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, unless somebody fashioned a horn. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But a, a horn would be like a herald trumpet, so it's it's a sound of authority and power. Or so I think that's definitely what's coming across here is is power. So it could be bad power. Yeah, these are definitely bad powers. But yeah. Jesus is going to come back with a glass of water. But he is all powerful. Yeah. And he's returning to the glass of the trumpet. Yes. So. <laughs> it reminds me of the, the, the horn, reminds me of the scene, and, and of course, this was not a bad horn, but the scene in uh, the, uh, was the Two Towers of Return of the King where Gimli goes and blows the giant horn. It's up in the. Two Towers of Helm's Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that that you know that loud sound and filled the air. Uh, so. in, in ancient days, I think when some you know, you know, certain officials mm-hmm. they had left and were coming back into town, mm-hmm. and their own sort of trumpet sound. Yeah, like, yeah. Harold. Yeah. yeah. Then you know, yeah. So and so back. Right. <laughs> right. Right. We're gonna get ready. Gonna yeah. <laughs> get your, get it all together now. He's here. <laughs> So, uh, so it says that uh, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. I think that's important. It's like the eyes of a man. Uh, so we can assume that this is a maybe a human concept of a human, and a mouth speaking great things. Um, now, verse nine. Here comes the good stuff. Uh, verse nine. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from from behind him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So now we have the Ancient of Days uh, shows up. In the, in the vision. And thrones are placed. The church fathers, uh, several of them, believe that these are the thrones talked about either the 24 uh, in Revelation or it's the ones for disciples. You know, Jesus said you will, uh, I forget how he put it, but that they would rule, you know, with him in, in the paradise or in, in heaven. Um, some of the church fathers indicate that. But anyway, thrones are put in place. And we have this one figure, the Ancient of Days, which is obviously a, a, a very important figure who shows up. And I think we can very clearly assume that this is God in some way. Uh, this is God. Now, the, 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 the debate historically, and this has been a debate throughout church history, is this Christ or is this God the Father? Um, and that's... It's been interpreted both ways, and I don't think either way is wrong. Uh, I don't think either way is necessarily in error. I mean, you know, God is God in three persons, right? So, um, but some people have interpreted different ways. The West has tended to interpret this as God the Father and the Son of Man who shows up here in a few minutes in this passage as Christ. The East has tended to interpret the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man both is Christ, and and I can tell and I'll tell you why here in a minute. 
So, but the West would see this as God the Father, and there's obvious reasons in the passage. I mean, he's he's enthroned. Uh, he's you know he's uh, shown as an ancient of days, meaning that the idea is he's eternal. He's pre-existent. He's eternal. He's ancient in his days. He's like an old ancient being that uh, has all wisdom and seen it all. And that's the that's the the vision the the visual language here. I guess you might say. So then, uh, so so we can say that that's God. That's God the Father, if we want, and I think that's a that's a fine interpretation. Yeah. You may be playing again to this, but the, what are the implications of taking one or the other? I mean, does it, does it well, matter, or is there? I don't think it matters that much. Uh, the um, The reason that the West tends to go by that's God the Father is because here in a minute, um, let's see where it is uh, down around verse. 13, you have the Son of Man shows up. And there came one like a Son of Man as he came to the Ancient of Days. So you get the impression there's two different beings there at one time. You see what I'm saying? And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. So, you know, the interpretation that this is God the Father is the, the Son of Man is going to his Father and you know, being blessed and given all authority on heaven and earth given to him by his father, you know. So does that does that make sense as to why that interpretation is out there? Yeah. So you don't have to help because the Trinity, wherever God the Father is, there's also the Son of Man. Yeah. The Holy yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It it just struck me yeah. That, there is a lot of yeah. identical that is why, yeah, Christ, absolutely. Jesus, yeah, yeah, you've seen the Father, that's right, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't really matter that much. I'm just sharing with you the history of the interpretation of this passage, you know, but uh, but the, the good thing about. What I like about interpreting this that it's Christ as the Ancient of Days is because you get a pre-incarnate Christology, which means you have Christ pre, you know, pre-existing, and then comes the Son of Man, which is the incarnation. You see, so I like that a lot. Uh, and uh, but it can be taken either way. I don't think there's a right or wrong interpretation here with that. You know. I don't know what, how well it fits the conversation, but I've seen it taught in Genesis 19.24 that it appears to be an interaction between God and the Son mm-hmm. and the Yeah. God the Father says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. Okay, yeah. And I've seen some teachers draw attention to that. The 
there. What passage is that? Genesis 19, 24. Okay, okay. It says, then the Lord reigned, and he visualized the Lord on the earth. Mm-hmm. So there's those angels that come down. Sure, to yeah. Destroy yeah. So you kind of visualize, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I yeah, no. No yeah. teachers have said this about that. Yeah, and yeah. Then the Lord reigned down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord, out yeah. of heaven. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, no, you, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how well it relates to, you know. Yeah, well, I don't think anybody is, no matter how you fall on that, as long as you hold to the eternal uh, existence of the Son, pre-exist, pre, you know, pre-incarnate existence of the Son, and as long as you hold that we have a triune God, I don't think you're going to go wrong here, you know, uh, with, with this passage. So, you know, if... If one if one sees this as God the Father, uh, God the Son coming to God the Father, uh, that's fine. If one sees this as Jesus, uh, you know, pre-incarnate, and then the Son of Man is Jesus incarnate, that's fine too. In fact, there's a church father. And let me read you this. If I can find where I wrote it. Um, as you can see, my printer's kind of wigging out here. Uh, a little hard to read. <laughs> And I'm an IT guy. I should be able to fix this, right? <laughs> uh, let's see. It was one of them that had a really cool Trinitarian statement about it. And that's what I'm looking for. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Every, every description we have, unless like an egg. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like water. Yeah. One times one times one equals one, whereas one plus one plus one equals three. Yeah. That's a good one. One way you can see the Trinity is that he is a person. He's a person, you know? Like you can be friends with him, but you have a relationship, you know? Like that. Mm-hmm. And how, how in the incarnate, incarnate Christ, in the sense, separates himself. Mm-hmm. He's not really separate. He's not really separate. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. And uh, and you don't have to ju- go ahead, I'm sorry. What you know, if, if, if he says if I, if I don't ascend, I can't send back the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So there is the Trinity. This is true, you know, we, we all agree with that, obviously. We're we're Christians. But there's um, you know, there's also the issue of the dual nature of Christ, you see in the pictures of the saints where they hold their two fingers up side by side. The hypostatic union, yeah. So that is, you know, having having this two thing is also this double uh, idea is also 
But uh, here, this was a, a writer. I've never heard of this guy. Okay, apparently he was an early Christian writer. Metrophanes, okay? Every now and then you'll hear a name. It's like, who the heck is that? Um, Of Smyrna says about this scene, and I loved this, mystic initiate of the triple light scene of the one lordship, Daniel saw Christ as judge going towards the Father and the Son and the Spirit who revealed the vision. So if you think of it that way, you could think the Trinity is present in this situation. And this is no different than looking at creation and seeing the Trinity in creation because the Son is not explicitly mentioned. But we know the Son, the divine Logos, was there in, in creation by, you know, because of the Word spoken forth to create. You know, Yeah, Paul says that. So you know, just because a, sometimes, sometimes members of the Trinity, their presence is denoted by what happens, not just by the fact that they are explicitly mentioned. They're not always explicitly mentioned. But but you see the evidence of their presence by what happens. So well, in Genesis two and four, it suddenly switches to the language not just alone, but it says mm-hmm. Jehovah Lord, the Lord God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It starts out in chapter two of Genesis. It says alone once or twice, then suddenly in verse four it says Jehovah the Lord God. Yeah, gotcha. Like that, so that in Genesis 1, you have uh, uh, Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. Yeah. You also have Elohim, which is the Spirit of God the Father. Yeah, exactly. Suddenly, right. Chapter 2, verse 4. Yeah. Elohim. There's the, the third part of the Trinity. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I saw a language point that out once. That's cool, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's true. Mm-hmm. Another strong verse for me in Genesis to confirm Bible says, let us make man in our yeah, image. Yeah, right, it's right. It's a picture of the Trinity because you cannot separate right. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. It's plural, yeah. It's the Trinity yeah. speaking, let us mm-hmm. make man in our image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and created there, mm-hmm. or, what's the word, uh, is singular, it's a singular verb. Yeah. In Genesis, but it's a plural noun. Okay, yeah. It's a plural noun. Gotcha. And yet gotcha. you have a singular verb. That's a deliberate act. Yeah. Of yeah. Yeah. And some draw attention to that. Yeah. Elohim, uh, Elohim, however you say it, is uh, is a there, there's that we could we could talk a whole lot about that term, and sometime maybe we can. But uh, but yeah, that's yeah, I think you're right. I think to go back to yeah. Christ's dual image, that that may be what Daniel's vision here is demonstrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. As he mentioned, uh, Son of Man being his incarnational. Right, exactly. When you see Son of Man in Scripture, it means it's a man. It means there's a man. Now, he's sometimes doing supernatural things. In this case, he's riding on the clouds. So he's a God-man, but he's a man. And, he's, uh, and so you see the humanity there, and therefore you can, that's why you can pretty much assume that's definitely Christ, you know, the Son of Man. So let's, uh, let's read on a little bit. So... Uh, uh, in verse 11, I already kind of read a little ahead, but verse 11, I looked then because the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Uh, so, so what's happened here in this vision in, is that the Ancient of Days shows up in the vision and they put thrones up you know, in place and the Ancient of Days is there. Hi, he's the judge. And this court, court, court begins. Books are open, as the scripture says. 
Well, you've got this little horn over here uh, yapping, okay, and saying saying uh, things, and it's they're trying to have heavenly court. Well, what do you do if you on an even in an earthly court? If you go into the courtroom and they're having court, and you start yelling and, and making a bunch of ruckus, what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, that's what happens. That's the that's the uh, picture you get here of this scene. Uh, this horn is in the presence of Almighty God, who's trying to have court, and he's and he's being disrespectful, and and, and so he's taken, he's killed. Boom, the, the the fourth beast is killed, and uh, in in fact, one translation, the old Greek version of the Septuagint, even go even I don't know why it says it this way, but I thought it was really interesting. It says he was beaten to death and killed. Okay, so I thought that was kind of cool, you know. He was beaten to death. Uh, so, just some pretty pretty interesting imagery, but uh, I just think it's kind of funny, you know. You've got this scene, this horns disrupting the, the throne room of God, you know. Put him, put him out, you know. <laughs> yeah, smack him, yeah. <clears throat> You don't want the smackdown of God on you, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, God always wins. That's right. That's right. Um, and so it says, uh, verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So, you know, you, the rest of the beasts, if you say they represent kingdoms, then he's saying, yeah, the rule lasted a certain amount of time. But their dominion was really taken away because ultimately dominion is Christ's, dominion is God's, you know. Uh, and then, in uh, already read some of this, we got just a few more minutes. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with uh, uh, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So here comes the Son of Man, just kind of shows up in this passage, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all pe- uh, peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which means there's no end to it, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And that's, of course, that's Christ. That's, that's Christ right there, no doubt. It's the Son of Man here. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels, you know, several times. You know he knew Daniel quite well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. In heaven, yeah. Right, right. Christ was incarnate. But, I mean, Christ was existent before the incarnation. That's an important uh, truth, you know. He was not created. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Any other closing words? I, I think I'm about wrapped up. Anybody has any other comments or questions? Or Okay. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Let's uh, have worship. Sure.